Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Great. My name is Mike, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Welcome to this session on... Get you the official title here. No, I know what it is. I just want to be official. A Design for Living, Lust versus Healthy Sexuality. Okay, I already said my name. I will be facilitating this session. Uh, I will share my recovery on this topic and then take time to answer questions. Questions will be taken from an Ask It basket. Uh, I believe the basket's in the back and there's paper and pencils and whatever. So if you have a question... uh, just jot it down, and then when I'm done talking, somebody can bring it up, and I'll, I'll try to go through as many questions as I can. Um, let me just turn this timer on so I don't go over. Um, let's see, what else am I supposed to say here? In the spirit of the fifth tradition to carry the message, this is a recorded session. The recording equipment will not be turned off during the session. We ask that you please silence all cell phones. I'm kind of a stickler on that. If you really need to use your cell phone, please quietly go outside because I, I, I rely on my talks on eye contact. And if your eyes are on the phone, it just, it just discombobulates me. It's my problem, but I, I ask your, your forbearance with it. Um, so let's start with a serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will not mine be done. Okay, so, lust versus healthy sexuality. I have to tell you that, honestly, if if I did not believe in miracles, I, I do, but if I didn't, the very fact that someone could ask me to lead a session on lust versus healthy sexuality proves that there are miracles. Because uh, there is no way on God's green earth that I would have ever imagined that I would have anything to say. I have a lot to say about the first half of this topic, but that I would have anything to say about the second half, healthy sexuality. But as a matter of fact, I, I do, or at least I think I do. Well, you guys will, you guys will find out in the next uh, few minutes, I guess. Um, so let me just uh, give a little background um, uh, I'm the second oldest of seven children, born on, in an Irish neighborhood, Irish American neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Uh, what we called ourselves often in those days was a SSICD, South Side Irish Catholic Democrats. They were everywhere. <laughs> there were actually other people in the neighborhood. We sort of knew it, but for the most part, we didn't have much contact with them. It was it was a, a it was a middle class ghetto, but it was still a ghetto in the sense that it was. It was what we used to call our own kind. Um, and uh, in my neighborhood growing up, there was an addiction that was obvious, 
but not obvious, and that was alcoholism. And I say obvious because almost everybody, it seemed to me, it probably wasn't almost everybody, but a lot of people drank too much. And it was obvious because they'd be falling out of bars, or they'd be at your family party trying to molest your sister, or they'd be throwing up in the back room, or they'd be whacking you around, or they'd be hilarious and funny. But you didn't have to look far to find somebody who was drunk on alcohol. Now, the reason it wasn't obvious was because since so many of us were drunk on alcohol, we really didn't know we had a problem. Uh, My sister got sober as a young woman, uh, and she got sober by going to see a Jewish counselor in the basement of the Protestant church's uh, community center. And that was not a coincidence, and that was not an accident. That was the only place she could go where someone would have enough objectivity to see what was going on, not only in her life, not only in my family's life, but in my neighborhood's life and in the rectory at the parish church's life. What was going on was alcoholism, and so much so that nobody could see it except those who were one step removed from our culture. The other disease, sexaholism, was something that was never seen and absolutely never talked about. Never. Some of you have heard this before, but it's a true story. When I was, I don't know, sixth grade, seventh grade, my father called me into his room, always bad, always bad. So I thought maybe I was in trouble, but I wasn't. He, he wanted to tell me the facts of life. And God bless him, he really, he really did his best. He really tried hard. When he started the conversation, he weighed 205 pounds. When he was done, he weighed 190. <laughs> he was a wreck. And I walked out of there saying, well, I'm not sure I know what he's talking about, but <laughs> whatever it is, it can't be too good because I've never seen that guy so nervous in my whole life. In eighth grade, the pastor came in. Since we're recorded, I won't say his name, but he had a fine Irish name. He's still alive, actually. He's 100-some years old. And uh, he came in, beat red, and gave the eighth grade sex talk, which was very similar to my dad's, except that he had to do it in front of boys and girls and about 50 of us. And uh, I don't think he lost 15 pounds, maybe only 8 to 10. (laughs) Anyway, those were the... Only two conversations I was ever involved with about sex from an adult in, in the family neighborhood parish I grew up in. It just, you just never talked about it. So somewhere along the way, I discovered pornography and masturbation. I honestly don't remember in what order, but one followed quickly upon the other. Um, and immediately... Roy talks in the book about, or I don't think it's in the book, but in one of the literature about the picture woman. Immediately, there were images. It's much better now, but for the first 20 years that I was getting up here giving talks, and and I can still see them sort of, but they're finally fading. I can still see images that I have not physically looked at in over 40 years. And so right now, in the moment, since we're talking about mindfulness and living in the moment a lot in this convention, I need to just surrender those images and and the temptation to be triggered by them 40 years later. Um, But immediately, I was hooked on lust. I was hooked on pornography. I was particularly hooked on nudity, female nudity, um, 
in pornographic magazines, later to be uh, X-rated movies, later to be adult bookstores, et cetera, et cetera. I got sober before Al Gore invented the Internet. So um, thank you. So, uh, so um, I didn't have that, thank God. Who knows if I'd be here today. I just don't know. The, the, the immediacy of it all overwhelms me. And I'm glad that uh, it was not a part of my, uh, what it was like, part of my story. Um, anyway, concurrently with this pornography and lust, I fell in love in high school, like a lot of guys do, a lot of gals do too. Uh, hello, Andy. Haven't seen you in a long time. Anyway, sorry for the aside, but just saw an old friend. Um, anyways, um, I fell in love with this gal, and... Uh, Things got sexual rather quickly. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing, but we just did the best we could, which I hope was good enough. And um, But at one point, I, I, I thought, I need some help with this. So I went to my dad, because my dad was my buddy. And I said, Dad, I got this girlfriend, and some stuff's going on. And he asked me one, maybe two questions. And then he just kind of put his head down and said... Uh, do you have a counselor at school you could talk to about this? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I said, as a matter of fact, I do have a counselor at school. I don't know if I can talk about this. I probably should have said, well, with all the training you've given me, Dad, including right now, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I don't think I ever mentioned anything to him or the counselor or anybody else. Again, I just did whatever I did and tried to figure it out. Um, but there was at least the effort there for some healthy sexuality, sexuality connected to uh, love. Um, at the same time, there were some gals in the neighborhood who a number of people were sexual with, including myself, and that was a whole different thing uh, akin to uh, the pornography, um, which I regret. Um, so... You know, my story is pretty boring. It's lust, masturbation, pornography, adult bookstores, X-rated movies, blah, 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 and an affair with a married woman. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was out of college. I was drinking like a fish. I was teaching religion in an all-girls Catholic high school. Uh, I was 23. The girls were between 14 and 18. I sort of knew enough that they were sort of off limits. Uh, thank God. A couple of them weren't so sure and made that clear to me. Uh, never forget a gal saying to me, Mr. C, I bet I could seduce you. And I'll never forget my response. It was a true and honest response of a sexaholic. I said, I'll bet you could too, so please don't try. Anyway, one of the teachers, uh, after a long night of drinking, made it known to me that she'd be interested in sexual activity. Now, I had another girlfriend, not the one from high school, but I had another girlfriend from college by this point and uh, was dating her. Uh, that's why it took me 12 seconds to start having sex with this woman when she let me know of her interest 
instead of six. I get that extra six seconds out of due respect to my current girlfriend. <laughs> the problem that developed out of that situation was that that girlfriend at the time is my wife today of over 35 years. And uh, I had kind of a weird... Uh, definition of honesty in those days. It took me about 10 years of sexual sobriety to be taught that my definition of honesty was completely wrong. I just told my girlfriend I'm having sex with this other woman and uh, I'm going to be honest with you, so there you have it. Um, so, you know, there'd be events for this, like we this, uh, we'd go to a baseball game as a faculty and I'd have my girlfriend with me, sitting in the row in front of me would be the woman I was sleeping with when I wasn't sleeping with my girlfriend. And uh, occasionally it got a little bit awkward. Um, but there was sort of that, there was sort of that thing, lust versus healthy sexuality, right there, right there. And... Um, I quit drinking through the help of another fellowship. Took me about another three years to quit acting out. Uh, the irony is that the person who first told me that my lusting and acting out resembled my drinking is, is my current wife. We're sitting in, by Lake Michigan one day and I, you know, that this poor woman, you know, she was my sponsor. She just didn't know it, neither did I. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I said, oh, geez, I was in one of those adult bookstores again. I just can't stay out of those places, you know. But I don't think too many guys <laughs> talk about that stuff. I was just too stupid, Dave. Anyway, um, and she said, you know, this reminds me of your drinking. No matter how, how bad, sooner, like, you could stop for a while, but you always had to go back to it. This, is, this seems really similar. I wonder if this could be an addiction. Never forget it, because I put my arm around her and said, no, those things have nothing to do with one another. Thanks for the thought, though. <laughs> Anyways, um, then I got sexually sober, which I'm not going to go into because I'm speaking tonight, and I don't want to tell you the same story twice, but I got sexually sober, and um, shortly after I got sexually sober, I got engaged to my current wife. And uh, then we got married. And then we do what married people do. We had sex. We were having some of it before, although we did have, I think, the last three months or something before we got married. We had like an abstinence period or whatever. But um, so in my marriage, I had to learn to begin to separate all this lust that I had had since I was a teenager that I talked about with a real love for this woman and not much of an idea of how to have a healthy sexual relationship. Um, I knew I wasn't supposed to cheat on her, so that was a step in the right direction. Um, I'd done that, and I devastated her. Yeah, we weren't married, but we were a couple, and I had violated that and caused um, damage that lasted 15 years into the marriage. I didn't know that until one day, 15 years into the marriage, uh, I, went, I went to a play with my wife, and the actress in the play was a friend of mine 
who threw her arms around me after the play. She was so happy I was there. And truth be told, it was a woman that, although I never did anything inappropriate with, I had a lot of lust for from time to time, from time to time. I love, I love when I catch myself in a big lie right in front of like, whatever, 50, 100 people. Lots of the time. Most of the time. Well, my, my, my wife must have picked up on this because when we got home that day, she was weeping. And she spent about 45 minutes telling me that that moment brought up a tremendous amount of fear in in remembering what had happened 15 years before when we were dating and I got involved with this this other person. Um, And that was an eye-opener about how much unhealthy sexuality or lust uh, can damage another human being. Um, Anyway... um, Early in our marriage, uh, I would say our sexual relationship was okay, but uh, there's a line in the white book that says sex is optional. I understood the concept sort of, but I, experientially I had no idea what that meant. So if we, if we went a certain period of time and we weren't having sex, that made me anxious. And what I did with that anxiety was I complained. In the early years of my marriage, I complained directly and vocally. We need to have more sex. We're not having enough sex. Do you want to have sex? If she said no, I'd say, why not? And we'd get in a fight about whether or not we were going to have sex. And then sometimes we would and sometimes we wouldn't. Um, now, it's not like I lost my sobriety there, uh, but it wasn't, I wouldn't call it healthy. Um, then at some point, being around you guys long enough, telling the truth long enough, because you know I learned early on in the program that my job was to look bad, not look good. I think a lot of guys can spend the, the guys and gals can spend a lot of time in the program and not get that central message. My job in every meeting is to tell you the one thing I don't want to tell you, not all the stuff I want to tell you. You know. Um, and so I did enough of that that I started figuring out that, you know, complaining and basically acting like a jerk when you don't get sex is not part of healthy sexuality. Uh, again, I could have told you this conceptually, but this is about real living. So I stopped doing that for the most part, and I'd say now I've, for a long time, stopped completely. But what I would do is uh, silently communicate my disdain. You know, I'm one of the, I'm a good talker, but I'm also a great silent communicator. Now, what I'm really bad at is, you know, the, the fake, you know, like I'm really furious, but I look like I'm serene kind of thing. I, I stink at that. But I'm really good at letting you know how unhappy I am without saying a word. And so that went on for quite a while. And, I, and the point in all this was... <clears throat> that there wasn't enough room for Kathy in, in the dynamic around sexuality because I was all over it all the time. Loudly, then quietly, but I was all over it all the time. And um, finally, we got into some counseling and we'd go together, but then we'd go separate. And in one of the separate meetings, the counselor said to me, you know, you're always wondering if she really wants to be sexual when you ask her, if she's just trying to appease you. 
And she said, how could she do anything but appease you when she knows that if she says no, you're going to be so devastated that no matter how well you behave, it's going to, it's going to be bleeding off you. And I said, I'm paying you to talk to me this way? <laughs> I'd say that to her a lot. It, it was kind of a shtick. But that was the first time and there was nothing funny about it to me. She thought it was hilarious. Anyway... Um, she said, why don't you try going through a period where you just stay out of it and leave there be some room for her to figure out whether she wants to be sexual or not. And I said, well, I'll tell you why. Because I'm going to have to wait a long time. <laughs> because whether she wants to or not, she's just not assertive. She's not going to tell me. She's, she, she can't, you know, Dave was talking about uh, kind of a mixed marriage that he's in. Uh, that he came from this real fundamentalist Protestant tradition and his wife came from a more, I, I don't know if you could say progressive, if that's fair, but progressive Protestant tradition. Well, I came from a mixed marriage too, even worse. I was a South Side Irish Catholic. My wife was a North Side Irish Catholic. <laughs> My point being, she had her own baggage about sex. Her mother literally had her first child and asked the doctors, how did this happen? She had no idea of the connection between intercourse and baby at the age of 20-something in the 1940s. This is the community. When I say we didn't talk about this, I'm not exaggerating. It was not done. So I'm thinking, the daughter of this woman's going to initiate sex? This is never going to happen. <laughs> and I was pretty, I was close to right. It was a long time. But the other thing this counselor said to me is, is if she doesn't feel like she can say no, then you're never going to get a real yes. So what do you want? More sex that leaves you wondering, was it real or not? Or less sex, but when it happens, you're going to know for sure. And I said, I want the second, but I don't know if I can pull it off. Then we had our second uh, child. We, we had a boy in 1988 and a gal in 1995. And uh, I can't even say that without wanting to just burst into tears because I'm so thrilled that I have these two great kids. But anyway, it has nothing to do with the talk. Um, but after the second kid, being the wise, sensitive, progressive guy that I am, I thought, well, I'm sure the wife isn't going to want to have sex for a day or two. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even a little longer than that. So once again, I said, you know what? You let me know. You let me know. I'm going to stay out of it. And I said to her something else, too. And I didn't come up with this on my own. I had a lot of sponsorship and a lot of help. I said, I'm not even going to bring it up. And I'm not going to give you any nonverbals. When you're ready, you let me know. The word sex is not going to come out of my mouth. Well, one week passed, and then two weeks. <laughs> Then a month, then two months. About 90 days, not that I was counting. <laughs> About 90 days in, uh, she said the word sex. And I said, did you just say the word sex? She said, she, she said I did. I said, well, I think according to our agreement, that means now I can at least talk to you about it. And she said, that's right, but I want to talk to you first. And she spent about an hour and a half talking to me 
about the good, because there was good in our sex life, the bad and the ugly, which had very little to do with the physical dynamics. Those of you who, who came expecting a, uh, you know, a, a very physical talk, you go see Harvey, for God's sake. <laughs> you know. I've told you the story about my Irish friend who was at the zoo with his kids and next to them were some Orthodox Jewish people watching the same animals. I forget, bears or whatever they were. And, uh, and uh, the, the animals started copulating. And my Irish friend started covering his kids' eyes while the Jewish family said, look, the bears are copulating. <laughs> so that's Harvey's talk. Anyway... <laughs> But she said, this, this is okay, but it can be better. And I said, yes, it can. And we just, just on our own, we actually didn't talk to anybody. We just on our own, we decided to go back to all the restaurants that we'd ever dated in and just go sit for an evening and talk about what was it like for you then when we were in college? The good, the bad, and the ugly. And then two weeks later, we'd go to some place when we were young and just newly married. And then two weeks later, we'd go somewhere where we were hanging out right before we had our son. And, and we just started having the conversation I could never have with my dad, I could never have with my pastor, I could never have with anybody. Um, and, uh, and I got to the point where I realized that I had finally reached the point where sex was optional for me and it was optional for her. Today, she initiates, I initiate. I say no sometimes. That was a miracle. I've probably only done it three or four times, but they're, they're, <laughs> I'm generally a yes man in that regard. But, <laughs> but, but there's just been a couple times where I just, I, I couldn't believe it, but I didn't feel like it, so I just said no. You know? And... Uh, it's just, it's just become a different thing. Um, part of what happened was, um, again, this came through sponsorship. I started using a mantra in my marriage. Some of you have heard me talk about it before. It comes from the scriptures. It's uh, what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. And... Um, I started saying that in my marriage. I must decrease. She must increase. I'm really bad at it. So I don't want to get too much credit. It's a great line, but I'm really bad at it. But I'm getting better all the time. Um, I realize that in many ways, although we were politically fairly forward-thinking and in terms of our church fairly forward-thinking or whatever, that I still, in terms of my DNA, had a very traditional idea of marriage. And, and that it involved the fact that I came first and she was there to support me. And I have slowly been dismantling that. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with sexuality? Everything. Everything. You know, a lot of times, and it's still okay if you want to ask this question, but a lot of times when I talk about this, one of the ask it basket questions I get is about sexual performance. It took me 20 years to realize it's not a performance. It's not a performance. When I go to a performance, there's a lot of people there. I usually have to pay for it, which, you know, we're not doing that in SA. 
in terms of a healthy sexuality. I don't think the payment plan is part of the operation. And it's, and it's not a performance. Nobody's watching. And if I'm watching too much, it probably means I'm in my head and not in the moment. So it's not a performance. And it took me years to figure out that really, I'm just here, have some fun. Literally, they call it making love. Make some love. Make some love happen between me and this lady. Because as my wife says, it greases the skids and marriage is pretty tough. That's it. It's about giving life literally and figuratively and making love. Having some fun. Hanging out. And so today... You know, if, if we're trying to get something going and my mind is just for whatever reason that day, it doesn't happen often anymore, but from time to time, it's like, you know, I got images of this person. That, I just say to her, I need to take a break and I go make a phone call. And one of the times I got in the asking question, in the middle of things? Yeah, exactly, living in the moment. Every once in a while I say, well, you know what, tonight's not my night. I don't have, she doesn't need a blow-by-blow blow of the six gals I've been thinking about besides her. That's called boundaries. I learned that here, too. It took me years. But anyway, it just tonight's not my night. Sometimes, you know, we're trying to make things happen, and for whatever reason, it's not going that well. And the two of us find ourselves absolutely laughing hysterically together. That's healthy sexuality. We just, I mean, we're just laughing, and we, <laughs> we have no idea why we're laughing. But for whatever, you know, we're getting older. <clears throat> we're both in our 60s, and like... You know, I don't watch nudity in movies, but, you know, every once in a while you catch a glimpse of something and they're rolling all over the place, and I'm like, that would kill me! <laughs> you know, we're at the stage, like, I, I think maybe we need to, to move, and it's not like because, well, let's try a new position. It's because, like, my back's killing me and i got to shift a cup, you know, this is... This is probably, like, you're probably going to run out and say, this is healthy sexuality, I don't want anything to do with it. But actually, believe it or not, it's awesome. It's awesome. And um, one of the things that concerns me sometimes in SA with some people is I, 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 there's sort of an anti-sex bias. So for what it's worth, I usually cause myself trouble at least once every convention. This may be that moment. Uh, <laughs> My, I have a bias. I'm, I'm pro-sex. My wife and I have a great time together. Um, not all the time. It doesn't always go great. But for the most part, it goes pretty well. It took us years to get there. And mostly what that took was, was recovery. Well, first of all, let me state the obvious. Sexual sobriety. So let's start there. Because sometimes I skip that and assume everybody knows that that's where I'm starting from, which is always a mistake. Sexual sobriety. Recovery. Conversation with others, sponsor, counselor, whoever. Conversation with spouse after conversation with others, not before. And then the physical stuff takes care of itself. It takes care of itself. Um, and I realize that there may be some sexaholics in these rooms so damaged that they maybe, you know, that they they're married, they're happy, but they don't want to take that risk. And I'm not here to say they should or they shouldn't. That's not my job. But at the same time, uh, sex is not the enemy. Lust is the enemy. And they're not the same thing. They are not the same thing. Um, So 
So, I am now going to take questions, so if anybody's written anything down, just bring them up here and I'll do what I can. Thanks for listening. Yeah, or you, can, you can call it out and I'll repeat it, it as well. All right, I'm Dave, I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Dave. I can't write due to uh, religious stuff, but um, I know you uh, spoke for a very short while about uh, um, anti-sex bias and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm single, I've been in the program since uh, early 2017. Uh, for me right now, single and celibate seems a lot more um, graceful and less scary than um, uh, you know a marriage where sex might be worse. Overtures for sex might be offered, and I'm petrified on how to handle that. So, um, can you talk more about how you've grown through, you know, being in a romantic relationship with someone um, and not necessarily lustful? Okay. Um, so, the, I think the question is uh, you, you're sober since 2017? Uh, no, I had a slip eight months ago, but I'm sober. Okay, so you're sober eight months. Okay, well, first of all, let me make one thing clear. If you're sober eight months and you're single, my, I totally changed my mind. I have an anti sex bias. <laughs> but, but, but I might change my mind down the road if we get to know each other and you get married and stuff like that. But anyway. Um, no, you're, where you're at is fine. Where you're at is fine. You're eight months sober. Um, you know, do what your sponsor tells you. Stay sober, work the steps. And if and when, if and or when uh, the, the whole dating question comes up, you know, as long as you have a good sponsor, you'll be, you'll be in good hands to deal with it. So don't worry about it. Um, as far as being petrified, welcome to the club. <laughs> you know... A friend of mine who's not in the program said to me, and he had gotten divorced, and he said to me at one point, somewhat negatively about his ex-wife, who I knew, uh, he said, uh, you know, if I had known then what I knew now, I never would have married her. Well, guess what, folks? If any of us knew then what we know now, none of us would have married anybody. That's why God gave us sexuality. Because when we're young and stupid and still capable of falling in love. We do. Thank God. Because if we waited till we knew everything we knew, we'd all be petrified. Because the truth is, stuff happens in a marriage, and it's, it can be terrifying. People die. Your parents die. Your wife's parents die. Sometimes, God forbid, your own kids die. People get molested. People find out that their spouses relapse into alcoholism or sexaholism or they relapse themselves. Bad stuff can happen. Uh, it's, can, it can be scary. It's, this is the real deal. I've been married to this woman for 35 years. I adore her. She drives me absolutely nuts. And, and quite frankly, I don't ask her, but I'm sure I drive her out of her mind. Anyone who would have to live with me is crazy. I mean, God love her. Harvey said the other last night at dinner, he turned to me, somehow we got on the wives and he said, they're saints. And I believe that. So on the one hand, yeah, there's a certain amount of, of scary, intimacy is a scary project. I believe, now I'm getting into my own opinions here, but you asked, so I'm going to blame you if anybody criticizes me. But, but, I believe intimacy is 
what we're here for. I believe that's what God created us for. doesn't mean every single person does that through marriage. There's different ways to do it. But, um, but yeah, part of it's scary. It's also the most rewarding thing I've ever done. The work that my wife and I have done in my marriage is the most rewarding thing I have ever done. So if a young man of your age said to me, would you recommend marriage? I'd say, well, at eight months of sobriety, no, I wouldn't. Work your program, get sober, get healthy. But when that happens, if you come back to me in a couple of years and you're still sober and you say, would you recommend marriage? I'd say, you're darn right I would. And if you say, well, how do I go about it? I'd say, go talk to Dave. <laughs> Dave H. from Nashville is... Uh, one of the first guys who went through what I, I don't know if Dave called it this, but what I call a traditional courtship. See, in the old days, I don't know if it ever really happened this way as much as the old-time movies that I can still actually watch, but in the old-time movies that I am allowed to watch, they don't go to bed first and then, you know, they, they like get to know each other. They start maybe with coffee. I don't know how it works, Dave. They start maybe with coffee. And then if the coffee seems okay, maybe they go out for lunch. And if the lunch is okay, maybe they do a movie. And then maybe after a few months, they hold hands. And there's this whole process that's beautiful and all but lost. But not here. It can be refound here. And it has been for many, many people. Okay, now, if I take this much on each question, I'll only get to about two. So let's see what else we have. I'll go right up to the edge of relapse, get totally aroused, and stop myself and have sex with my wife in a day or two. Can you relapse with your wife? Oh, boy. That's not fair. Uh, <laughs> you know, Harvey always tells me, don't get caught up in the game of did you lose your sobriety or not. We have a sobriety definition. We all know what it is. No sex with self. And no sex with anyone other than the spouse. Okay? That's it. So if you're having sex with yourself, that's a relapse. If you're having sex with someone other than your spouse, that's a relapse. If you're having sex with your spouse, I guess technically it's not a relapse. Is this healthy sexuality, though? No, it's not. Um, I don't know if it's technically a relapse or not. I guess technically it isn't. But if, you keep, if, if I'm sponsoring you and you keep doing this, I'm going to think you fired me. Because I'm going to tell you, stop this. Um, I'll go right up to the edge of relapse. Okay, well, so let's, I mean, this is really for another talk in a way. Let's not go up to the edge of relapse. Because here's the thing about cliffs. If you walk to the edge of a cliff all the time and you keep doing it, sooner or later... You're going to be in such a habit because you're addicted to, to walking to that edge. Sooner or later, maybe it's going to be a windy day. Did you notice today? Today would be a good example. I'm, I'm actually staying at a different hotel a couple blocks away. So I walked over and I just made it before the rain really came. You know, and it was windy and I was, I was actually running because I thought I do not want to be soaking wet tonight. It's 8 o'clock giving the big talk, you know. So I'm hustling in. Like, but if I was on a cliff, I'd have probably fallen off. So if you're going right up to the edge of relapse, talk to your sponsor and come up with a relapse prevention plan so you stop doing this. My guess is it's going to involve lots of phone calls, lots of meetings, working the steps, and all that regular stuff. Um, 
And I would say, and again, I don't mean to get myself in trouble here, you know, far be it for me to tell you when to have sex with your wife or not, but don't have sex with your wife. Don't use your wife as a vehicle to literally ejaculate your lust on her. Sorry for the graphic reference, but I couldn't think of anything else. Don't, don't do that. It's not nice. Okay, next. How do I deal with lustful thoughts and fantasies for and involving my wife? Woo, boy, you guys have got some great questions. And I still have 21 minutes to go. (laughs) It is a great question. Um, How do I say this? I I have a bit in in one of my... I have all these different... Quiet time prayers, and I use some on different days. Let me see if I can get this one. Brief non-lustful fantasies about my wife. That's a term I use. I made it up. What do I mean by it? Not sure, but I'll give you my best thought. Um, I'm married to my wife. I'm sexually attracted to my wife. You might find this hard to believe, but at 62, I'm more sexually attracted to her than I was when I was 26. Uh, according to the picture woman philosophy of life, this makes no sense. According to the healthy sexuality, marriage is about intimacy picture or, or philosophy of life, it makes a lot of sense. Anyway, um, sometimes throughout the day, I might, and this doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes I might start thinking about my wife in a sexual way. So what? She's my wife. The question is, am I still thinking about it 20 minutes later and is it leading me into a place of something's got to happen because I had that thought? That's a problem. That, that has gone from a brief, non-lustful fantasy about my wife to a long, soon-to-be, if not already, lustful fantasy about my wife, which is going to lead me to an expectation or a demand which is lust, which I need to surrender. Now, how do I know exactly when I've crossed that moment? I gave up worrying about it. I know because if, I, if, if it's still... You've probably heard this one, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. There's these two monks walking along a river. You heard this one? And uh, they come upon a naked woman. What she's doing there, I don't know. I didn't ask. But uh, the one monk takes her, walks her across the river puts her down, and then the two monks walk on. And about a half an hour later, the younger monk says to the older monk, you know, we're not supposed to like be involved in this kind of naked thing. <laughs> and uh, the old guy says, I put her down a half an hour ago. Why are you still carrying her? And that to me is the key. Yeah, I'm going to have sexual thoughts about my wife. I hope so. I hope so. But what kind of thoughts are they? What am I doing with them? What do they mean to me? How long are they lasting? Are they creating in me a sense of entitlement? Uh, then that's a problem. If it's just, gee, that would be nice. Oh, well, got to get back to work. That's, that's called humanity. That's called life. Okay. How do you move past sexual anorexia? Is that, it says anorexity, but I assume it means anorexia. Um, in order to meet your wife's needs after she trusts you again and needs that connection? I don't know the answer to this, but it's a great question because, because there does come that time where if you've been sober long enough 
and the, the marriage is improving. And it, it doesn't happen in every marriage, but in many marriages, there comes a time where the spouse actually wants to be sexual with you again. You know, like, wow. <laughs> many of us thought that would never happen. And sometimes we don't want that because we've developed our program in such a way that any thought of sex is terrifying to us. And I don't know, that was not my experience. So I don't know the answer, but I do think it's a great question because, again, that's my pro-sex bias. It may not work for everybody, but yes, if you can find a way to meet your spouse's needs to be intimate with your spouse again, that's great. And if you're afraid to, and if you're afraid to because you're afraid it's going to open the whole can of worms to lust, welcome to the club. We've all had to, we've all had to deal with this. Um, do you mind if I share something, Dave? It's about you, not me. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> you know, Dave, Dave, in order to have children, had to do an in vitro thing, which meant he had to have sex with himself to get the specimen. And I'm sure, I don't know, but from the conversations, I, I know that that created anxiety. And where is this going to lead? And Dave did what we all do. He talked to his sponsor. He talked to me, uh, probably some other people too. I imagine after having done so, talked to his wife and figured out a way through that he could do that without jeopardizing his sobriety. And that's the process. I don't know the specifics, but the process is you're afraid, talk to your sponsor, come up with a plan, figure out a way to do it. Maybe, maybe you start here and you move slowly to there. I don't know, but it's a good question. Okay. Yes, sir, there. Hey, Bill. Do you have specific steps to make sure that you don't fall into the, the, the pattern of causing an argument so that you can have makeup sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I never thought of it. I never, my, my first thought was, oh, I could cause an argument and have makeup sex. Jeez, am I dumb? I didn't even know that. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've done it for makeup sex. Uh, but I, but I certainly, I certainly have something to say about how not to cause an argument with my wife uh, around sex or anything else. It's really easy to say, and for me, very difficult to do. And that's keep my mouth shut. I like to talk. I enjoy being right, and I frequently think I am. I now, I now read something every morning that says, how does it go? I wish I had it with me, but it goes something like this. Um, God, help me to be wrong. I'm better off being wrong because when I am right, I am dangerous. That's beautiful, isn't it? You like it, I know. So um, it, it's like, if, if I could have saved myself so much trouble in my life by just keeping my mouth shut, but my history until about 15 years ago was that I never, ever kept my mouth shut. I was one of those guys who believed if you had a passionate thought, it must be expressed. And one day somebody, and I don't remember who, told me that urgency is normally the enemy of recovery. 
he said to me, if, you're, if your house is on fire, that's urgent, and you need to act with urgency. In that moment, urgency is not the enemy of recovery. Urgency is the friend of recovery. Uh, and a couple other examples like that. But he said, in all other cases, urgency is the enemy of recovery. I have to do it now. Usually means the opposite. That the more convinced I am that something must be said in order to put the world right, right now, there might even be some value in what it is I'm thinking or my opinion. And maybe there's a place that, where it needs to be expressed. But the point is, it's not here and it's not now because I'm feeling urgent. That, that thing that always told me it must be now has literally had to be turned upside down for me. Uh, and so today, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I, I was going through the, the uh, TSA thing at the airport and, uh, at Midway in Chicago, and uh, they changed it all. And I, I have a thing. I hate being physically stopped. I hate toll booths. I get anxiety attack to, going into a toll booth. It's like there's a gate and someone's stopping me. Sometimes my wife accidentally, I'm going out the door to work, and she stands in front of the door to talk to me. And I literally want to, like, run through her. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but I, at TSA, my wife and I decided five years ago, we go in separate lines. I basically said, I don't want you anywhere near me because I know I'm going to be tempted to act badly, and at least if you're not there, like, I won't be messing you up while I'm messing me up. And... Um, Thank you. So, uh, so uh, anyway, I'm going through TSA. I always hang on to my boarding pass, even though they say don't, you know, got to put everything. I just hang on to it. But I don't know if somebody's one time told me not to or something. So the last few times I'm like, what are you so uptight about? Just stick it in the bin with everything else. Well, they've changed their thing, and I don't want to go through the details, but I, I had my jacket, my boarding pass, my wallet in one bin, and my bag in the other bin. And when it, when it came out the other end, the bag came out first. And I'm like, I'm a very linear person. I'm like, this is the wrong order. Something's wrong. Where's my stuff? I immediately say to the TSA guy, where's my stuff? I got another bag. It's not here. He says, well, we got a new system, and sometimes things don't come out in the same order, which made no sense to me. But I'm like, I'm like all right. And, I, and, and I'm sitting there, and here's what I'm saying. Don't say anything. Don't, this is my head. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Alternating with... As soon as I get this stuff, I'm going to tell them what a bad job they've done. <laughs> then my, it finally comes. I'm, I'm saying I'm giving them three minutes, and literally with four seconds left, because then at three minutes, then, then I've earned the right, right? It, it comes. So I get everything, and I'm, and I'm in a big panic. It's there now. There's nothing left to panic about, but I'm now in panic mode. So I go, I put the shoes on, and I realize I don't have my boarding pass. I put it in the bin. I go back, and you know how when they're done, they stack the bins in this thing? I start pulling them up, looking for my boarding pass. And uh, they don't say anything. They're looking at me like, okay, where's this going to go? And uh, I say to the guy, I I had my boarding pass in the bin. and, And I'm still convinced, by the way, that they took it and that I didn't leave it there. I don't know which is true, but I'm con- but whatever. And I'm about to, I want to give a speech about that to them too. And finally the guy says, 
what gate are you at? And I said, I don't know what gate I'm at. That's why I need my boarding pass. <laughs> and he said, what's your name? I, I give him my last name. And uh, he goes, hmm. And he calls some other guy over, and they had it. You know, I don't know why he didn't. He, he kind of led me along a little before he gave it to me, whatever. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm going to take this and say, bad job, guys. And by the way, you used to have a really good system here, and now it sucks. <laughs> Most of my life, that's exactly what I would have done. In fact, a few years ago, I was standing in the thing like this with my wallet in my hand because the lady, the TSA lady said, go ahead and hold on to it. But on the other side, they said no. And, I, and I'm standing there going, your lady told me I could hold on to it. <laughs> And he says, well, you can't. And I said, well, I'm not moving. (laughs) And he says, okay, sir, but I don't know how those 25 people waiting for you to get done doing whatever it is you're doing are going to feel about that. At which point I shamefacedly, you know, did what all good people do. I did what I was told. But... um, so it's a long answer to a question, but I, I, I think for me, uh, I've gotten, I've got a ways to go, but I've gotten, I'd say, 80-some percent better at just keeping my mouth shut and not causing a fight to, for makeup, sex, or for any other reason. Yes, sir. I'm Bill, recovering sex addict. Um, so I've been sober for a little over three years. Um, I love my wife. I'm eternally grateful to my wife, but I struggle being attracted to my wife. I guess part of that is comparison to acting out partners and such. And and I thought, or was of the belief that the love would just carry me through, and I'm finding it's a big struggle. I was just wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for sharing that. I mean, you know... Marriage is complicated, it's, it's mysterious, and, they're, and they're, they don't all look alike. You know, I used to think there was a formula for this marriage and recovery stuff. And there's some basic truths, I think, such as staying sober. But uh, every marriage is not the same. And so I don't, you know, I don't know what to tell you. And I, don't have, I, I wish I had a magic bullet for you. I don't. Um, uh, one of the things I wonder about with some guys, and, and perhaps you would this would fit for you, I don't know, uh, is, have you, do you know what attraction is? Is it's not lust. It's a different thing. I can't, I, I wish I could define it. I can't define it. Um, but I think Dave, in one of his talks yesterday, was talking about the difference. Maybe, I think it was Dave, but it, might, it was somebody on one of the panels was, was talking about the difference between what he feels for his wife, which is an attraction, and there's certainly a, a sexual element to it, and a trigger. You know, a trigger says... Goodbye, world. I'm going somewhere else. And attraction says, you are my world. I'm hanging around with you forever. They're two different things. There's an element of sex in both of them, but they're very, very different. And I do think for some of us who've been so wired to the, to the negative, to the lust, that then the whole thing about healthy sexuality, if you're comparing your wife to lustful sex partners and your wife's coming up short, then your mind hasn't been rewired enough yet because something is still, there's still something in you that's not seeing that lustful stuff for what it is, which is 
death. It's death. You know, I mean, why, why do all, no offense to any of you who've done it, but why do all these 60-year-old guys like me divorce their wives and go get trophy wives? Because they look at the 26-year-old and think that's them. Actually, it's not. It's the trophy wife. You're still 60. You're still going to die. Sorry. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, my name is Jill. I'm Victor from Sexology. Um, I don't know how to say this. And it's just too hard for me to express that emotion. Thanks, man. Have you experienced having crying while having sex with your wife? Crying? Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure if you said crying or crime. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I was going to not answer that one, but let's go back to crying. <laughs> I, so let's, I have experienced a lot of times having sex with my wife, and right after finishing, I started crying. Obviously, there are some emotions going on. And there are emotions that I, it's hard for me to get in touch with it, so that's why I'm asking, putting it on you. I want you to get it for me. Yeah. Um, and, what was your experience, or did you have any sponsees that were experienced that? And short hair, about it. Okay. Because um, I was going to get the messages. I mean, again, I, I don't know. I can't answer your specific situation. I don't know enough about it. Um, have I ever cried during or after sex with my wife? Yes, not often, but I have, and it's been it's been a good thing for me. It's just been like, wow, I can't I can't believe I'm really alive. It's really whatever day it is, I'm with this person in this world, in this marriage, and it's going this well. And there's been tears of gratitude. There's been tears of joy. I don't know if that's what you're referring to or if, if you know, things went so badly, you're, you're kind of grieving the experience. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't in a bad way. Right. I, I that's what I thought. Lot, but there was a lot of gratitude. There's no question about it. I don't know that I. I yeah, I I don't know if I've had that during or just after, but I've certainly had the experience. I've certainly had the experience of of tears, thinking I wasted all this time doing that when I could have been involved in this. Definitely. Um, how do you deal with? I can't read this. Illness, cancer, etc. Involved. Issues finding answers for... I'm having a hard time reading this. Is this you, Ed? Yeah. Do, do you mind asking it out loud or, or, or just reading it? I, I just... I'm sorry. How do you deal with illness, cancer, etc. involved? When you're facing impotency impet- issues. Oh, okay. That come up. Okay. Um, again, I don't, you know, I, at the moment, no impetency issues. But um, I, I'll, I'll share this. My, my brother Terry, who's in the program sober, I think, 20, 20 or 21 years, his wife got cancer uh, in 2005 and had cancer off and on until she died in 2012. And there came a point at which physically for her, any kind of sex just 
just wasn't, it was more physically painful. It just, and so, you know, thank God, you know, Terry would reached a point in his program where would he have liked to have sex with his wife? Sure. Was he going to in any way push that? You know, I even said to him, well, you know, there's other things you can do kind of thing. And he said, that just doesn't work for us. He was just like, I've accepted they, but they had the most intimate marriage the last six years of her life. They would, they would do things that I, to this day, don't know if I could pull off. They would go sit in a park on a park bench for five hours at a time and do absolutely nothing. They might talk a little bit. They might not talk at all. They'd just look at the world around them and go home and say, wasn't it a beautiful day? That's healthy sexuality, even though there's no sex involved. Um, they found a way to um, walk with each other. He he showed up for everything in her life. Uh, he made her happy and comfortable. And this was a good but somewhat volatile marriage. But, you know, they just turned it around. And uh, they were madly in love with each other for the last six years. And I doubt they had sex one time during that period. Um, they just reached a point where that wasn't part of the equation anymore. And in, in Terry's case, my brother's case, because of the program and because he had learned that sex was optional, it, that was not a crisis. Um, so, thank you. Thank you. Uh, did I get another one up here, or was that? Or is that yeah. Where is it? <laughs> oh, this. Is... No, it's not a card. Got to wrap it up. Oh, sorry, guys. What did you do with the letters? Did you give them to her or not? Oh. <laughs> I was like, did I talk about letters? Man. I think this was from the last one, too. I think you ought to put it on the podium. It's right in front of me. All right, this will be the last one. I just want to let people know there is another way to treat infertility that doesn't involve providing sperm. Okay, so it's called NAPRO technology. So if anyone wants to know about that, find this person. (laughs) All right, I appreciate everybody's attention and time. Anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Uh, Let's close with the third step prayer. You want to make a circle? You just want to stay in your spots? Whatever. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.